This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Paul Gennetto, an associate professor of laboratory medicine and pathology, who is director of the Clinical and Forensic Toxicology Lab, Clinical Mass Spectrometry Lab, and Metals at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Gennetto. Well, good morning. Uh, It's both an honor and a pleasure to be here talking with you. As I was kind of rolling through your titles and what you're responsible for, uh, you got a lot on your plate there. And I was wondering if you could kind of help translate, help all of our listeners understand kind of how do your roles in these different laboratories play a role in support testing for patient care? I'll start with the Clinical Mass Spectrometry Laboratory, where there I oversee the therapeutic drug monitoring tests. So where we perform quantitative measurements of various prescription drugs to aid in the management of patients. For example, anti-epileptics. These represent some of the highest volume and large class of drugs uh, that we perform therapeutic drug tests on. Drugs like levetiracetam, lamotrigine. And if a concentration is too low or subtherapeutic, the patient's seizures might not be well controlled. Conversely, if the concentration of that drug is too high, They also might have adverse side effects. And so having the drug concentration can help a physician decide if they need to make a dosage adjustment, either up or down, uh, or sometimes even it might indicate that they need to switch to an alternative medication. In my metals laboratory, we perform uh, elemental analysis of both trace elements and heavy metals. And elevated concentrations of arsenic, cadmium, lead, mercury or thallium can cause toxicity, especially things like neurological problems, like bilateral peripheral neuropathy, renal damage, hematologic effects, or even cardiovascular disease. And so the issues of the abnormal metal concentration is actually an essential and key element to actually make a diagnosis of heavy metal toxicity, and that can help further direct patient care and management. And lastly, in the clinical and forensic toxicology lab, where the identification of either an illicit or prescription drug can help play a role in understanding that patient's toxicity or even the cause of death in a decedent. So overall, between my three laboratories, while it's a broad category, it kind of all relates to drugs and or elements and and whether it has a beneficial effect uh, or toxic effect. It's interesting, you know, as you've laid those out, I mean, it's a very uh, specialized area of laboratory medicine. And yet I think that a lot of our listeners can relate to this, you know, our emergency medicine physicians dealing with toxicology testing. Uh, A lot of our primary care listeners might be hearing about maybe this metals testing as they screen their patients and follow up on abnormal tests and odd symptoms. And then uh, certainly a lot of our physicians, probably the most can relate to therapeutic drug monitoring. Although it is special areas of the lab, you really touch on a lot of different physicians and care for a lot of patients who are out there. How is this field developing? I think on the clinical side, it may not be apparent how this testing is updating and how this is continuing to evolve uh, that might be a little hidden inside the black box. And same thing for students. So can you help us kind of get an understanding of what are some of those latest developments in your area of clinical laboratory medicine? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. I'm actually super pumped and excited, to be honest with you, because on March 2nd, our clinical and forensic toxicology laboratory is going to be unveiling our new enhanced controlled substance monitoring panel. And I think this is something that actually relates to all clinical areas and disciplines, from general practitioners who prescribe controlled substances to pain management, addiction medicine, emergency medicine. There's a lot of use of controlled drugs and substances. And obviously, the United States is known about the opioid epidemic and things of that nature. But the reason I'm excited is that this new testing or panel that we put together really is a unique approach to controlled substance monitoring. And it's consistent with evidence-based guidelines to meet the requirements of our providers while being very mindful of the costs to the patient and the healthcare system. Uh, it has lots of additional features and benefits. In fact, we use high-resolution, accurate mass spectrometry to identify more than 70 parent drugs and metabolites where immunoassays aren't adequate. We have these comprehensive targeted screens where we can identify 33 different opioids, 27 benzodiazepines, 10 stimulants, and PCP. And what this does is it really minimizes the need for additional or confirmatory testing, so additional mm -hmm. costly, expensive testing. And because we have parents and metabolites of the drugs, we can actually identify when people try to spike in drug to simulate compliance to their controlled substances. And we also include specimen validity testing because about 3% of the samples we get are adulterated, where people are trying to mask or hide their misuse of, of other controlled substances. And probably the most exciting piece of this to me is that this new test actually comes together with an interpretation so that physicians don't have to memorize those complicated metabolic pathways or quite frankly, because our tests are so sensitive now, we can actually identify pharmaceutical impurities. And so a physician would get alarmed if they see a drug that they're not prescribed and that it's also not a metabolite of the drug that they're prescribed. And so having the interpretation there that tells them that this can be a pharmaceutical impurity will make sure that they give the accurate interpretation and so they don't uh, accidentally accuse somebody of misusing a drug when really we're just seeing this pharmaceutical impurity that's present. And so this new test is something that our lab's been working on and it has evolved over the past five years and is going to really be, a, in my mind, a big game changer and really help the field and the patients and our, and our providers. Paul, as you were talking there, it sounds like you figured out a way to marry two things that I think about as two different. You said that the way that you've got this new testing set up, there's no need for additional testing. So it's very cost conscience. But then at the same time, it's almost like it's it's for everybody. It's like a great screening, but also a great confirmatory test. I mean, we think about sensitivity and specificity as um, a trade-off, typically. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit about how this new approach that you've developed actually is able to bring both sensitivity and specificity along? The secret to this success is really using these targeted screening approaches. And because we use uh, the high resolution accurate mass spectrometry, as opposed to immunoassays, which in the past are very cost effective and quite frankly, still have a place. Like we use them in the emergency room. When you need an immediate quick answer that you can quickly, a physician can help triage a patient, manage a patient. But in these cases where we're looking at controlled substance use, misuse, uh, addiction, and other issues, these targeted screens, give you that sensitivity, that specificity that you're talking about, so that instead of saying you're positive for a drug class, opioids, 
benzodiazepines. Well, that's a big class. Well, you actually want to know, well, what drug in there is causing it to trip positive? Because you might be prescribing oxycodone, but if the patient's taking morphine, well, your assay is going to trip positive but you're not gonna know that they're taking your drug or misusing and taking something else like morphine or even heroin or something else. And so by using these new methodologies, these targeted screens and and, and technology, that's our ability to actually get that information. It's specific information the physician needs to actually assess if the patient's compliant to their therapy and identify misuse. Well, still giving them that information and at the cost and really sort of efficiency that we can similar to that of immunoassays. And so that's really been the secret behind this testing approach. And that's how we minimize going on and doing additional confirmatory testing. That's brilliant. I understand your excitement in this is that for uh, all of our listeners, what I'm hearing, it's really this new uh, methodological approach that's allowing us to do this. And then I think the other point you you said that really kind of customizes you know, how these tests get used is you mentioned like in the emergency medicine realm where you need something that's more point of care that actually it's smart to not do this panel uh, or maybe it's done as a reflex or follow-up later, but you know, that it's actually very context dependent as far as which methodology you want to use. And I think that's one of the wonderful aspects of laboratory medicine that I think a lot of us enjoy. And it's not as apparent sometimes to our clinical listeners about how this methodology actually translates into better patient care. And in this context too, talking about better management of our resources, this sort of sustainability of our system. laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. One of the other things you mentioned that I wanted to dive into was you, you mentioned about including an interpretation and, and the concept of diagnostic management teams is something I've been really interested in, this idea of in laboratory medicine, really working to support the clinical team. You're putting an interpretation on the report, but it, it kind of makes me mindful that you probably are having quite a few phone calls and, and interactions with our clinical colleagues. Could you just kind of give us a flavor for those interactions Because that's one of the things we want to highlight on this podcast is how that the uh, clinical medicine and laboratory medicine are really collaborating together and doing a dance. Oh, absolutely. And it's a very important teamwork. And and I agree, uh, you know, uh, we are members of the diagnostic team, and I really see it as a team effort in, in, in patient care. So most of my interactions with physicians actually do revolve around helping uh, a physician interpret the test results or sometimes guiding appropriate test selection or follow-up additional testing that might be needed to get to the answer to the question that that they have. I also work closely with the clinical practice to identify their needs, to bring up new tests, especially up and coming new pharmaceuticals uh, where therapeutic drug monitoring might be beneficial or in some cases to help discover new clinical applications or utility for like the elements in various clinical matrices. And so our labs also, in addition to providing support for clinical patient care, also help a lot with the advancement of research projects in various areas. And particularly, for example, in my metals lab, we have lots of support of our faculty to look at things, including 
gadolinium, a contrast agent that's literally used in thousands of patients here daily. And because of the research and things, it's actually impacted both government and institutional policies across the world into when these agents are used and how they're administered to minimize any potential toxicity or effects. And so to me, it really stresses the importance of having that interaction with our clinical colleagues so that we're not operating in isolation and that we work together for our patients. If I actually look at the most common call I get, uh, it is involved around that controlled substance monitoring testing. Maybe that's one of the reasons selfishly I'm excited about those interpretations because it'll help that. It's gonna put the information right in front of the clinician that'll help them make that accurate interpretation. I will be honest with you, this is a very broad and confusing area. For example, the most common call I get is usually a physician is prescribing one medication and they usually find that drug along with another. And so they have a question or a dilemma, right? actually, right? Because they have to go, well, is my patient being compliant with the medication I'm prescribing? And is this other drug that's not a metabolite of the prescribed drug, you know, represent use of another controlled substance? Or because of that pharmaceutical impurity that I talked about earlier, is that just that one of those pharmaceutical impurities? Because obviously both of those two situations have different clinical outcomes for the patient. Having the information on that report now or talking to myself or my colleague, co-director of the laboratory, we can help provide that guidance and interpretation to which is the right answer in these scenarios. And by looking at the ratios and the concentrations of these, we can actually make that termination. So that way, at the end of the day, the physician is making the right interpretation for that patient situation. Uh, because again, consequences are very different for each of those scenarios. I hadn't thought about uh, pharmacological impurities before. And to think about that even as a possibility, um, and I'm sure there are probably several people that are in the know about this, but you know, some of the people probably like me that are still on that learning curve. You know, it makes sense that you're getting a lot of these calls and, and having interactions about questions around opioid and certainly uh, given the epidemiology of that in this country. I'm curious about how that conversation has changed for you as far as I imagine, you know, somebody uh, recently I was listening to was talking about how we should be evolving over time and we shouldn't be doing the same thing five years down the line that we're doing today necessarily. And I'm curious about how your consultation, those clinical consultations, how has that changed, uh, assuming based on, you know, feedback you've gotten from those conversations? You're absolutely correct. Things have evolved and changed. And in the world of drugs, the biggest changes that we see are a lot of these synthetics that you start to hear about. So you hear like things like bath salts, synthetic cannabinoids, and, and these other designer drugs or fentanyl analogs. As pharmaceutical companies and products have, have evolved, so has drug abuse. <laughs> and so a lot of this uh, has driven of the questions as well as the testing and targets that we look for. And so it's been interesting because yeah, with this epidemic, the minute you start to crack down on one area, they then switch because they're very good chemists. I will have to admit, drug abusers, misusers, and, and dealers, they actually have some good chemistry background. So they know when we look for things, you know, I talked about those targeted screens and the specificity we have. Well, that's a, an advantage, but also a disadvantage because when we look for something, we look for just that. And so if you structurally modify that drug or compound, now we don't see it. 
but it still might have the same clinical effect. And so that's really evolved and changed over the years. And that's why some of these things like the fentanyl analogs and other things get picked up by amino assays, but may not get picked up in a definitive test where we specifically only look for those key elements. So it's, it's interesting. It, it's a leapfrog game where, you know, they make a change, we make a change diagnostically to make sure that we're countering that or being able to identify those things. Uh, they make another change and then we have to make a change. Uh, so it's a constant evolution. Uh, and so sometimes the targets that we look for change over time, but we still use the same tools to address the, the need. Yeah, I think this is hopefully getting a lot of our listeners excited about this area of laboratory medicine and, uh, you know, hopefully students kind of consider going into this uh, direction for a career path. I want to transition now to actually, as now I reflect, I didn't introduce you in this way, but, but you also serve as vice chair of the supply chain for Department of Lab Medicine and Pathology. And we're recording this at the end of February in 2021. And the supply chain has been uh, very much talked about in relation to the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And given that we are now a year plus into this, I'm curious, do you have any reflections about key lessons that you have learned trying to stay ahead of, of supply chain issues? I actually took over this position in January of 2020, thinking that this was going to be, you know, a, a typical position, not overly demanding. And then, of course, we had a global pandemic. Baptism by fire, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I'll tell you something. One thing that supply chain management has taught me is really reinforce the importance of teamwork and resiliency. You know, at Mayo Clinic, we have an environment that fosters both. That's really the secret sauce to surviving, uh, especially in a global pandemic. And supply chain is a team effort. It begins actually with forming longstanding partnerships with trusted vendors and suppliers, having a dedicated and hardworking supply chain management team, along with the laboratories, the end users of these products, who all collaboratively have to work together to keep tests available and going for our Mayo Clinic patients. Because it's not a matter of if a supply chain shortage will occur, but rather when and how do we get past that? How do we use various strategies to overcome it? Like having multiple redundancy products or vendors so that we can make sure we don't have shortages to even the ability to self-produce or make our own products. Uh, and that's something that we actually started doing during the pandemic because very early on, the swabs and the viral transport media used for the molecular SARS-CoV-2 testing were in shortage worldwide. Uh, Italy actually was the main manufacturer of swabs. And of course they were devastated very early on in this pandemic. And so their worldwide production just shrunk. And so everybody had a need for these the swabs and of course also the viral transport media. And so at Mayo Clinic, we began making our own phosphate buffered saline packaging in and tubes. So we had that as a transport media. And in collaboration with our very own Mayo Clinic 3D anatomic uh, printing lab, they designed with, with their help and their expertise and their team, quite frankly, they designed, 3D printed, validated, and, and FDA registered the first 3D printed mid-turbinate adult swab. 
And that's now in our supply chain cabinet and being used. And so it really showed that it takes a resilient team working together towards a common goal to be successful. And, and so that's probably the most important lesson that I've learned through, through the supply chain management. Wow. I'm a Trekkie in my personal life. And when we're talking about 3D printing these swabs that, you know, the manufacturers weren't available for, it just seems like the the Star Trek episodes is you order your cup of Earl Grey and it would uh, appear and then you could uh, take it. But if I could just ask you to clarify, because it may not be very apparent to some of our listeners, you know, you talk about teamwork and I think we all have a good understanding of that. When you mention resiliency of the system, I think, you know, the first place that a lot of people's minds might go would be to like personal or individual resiliency as far as like a personal well-being. When you're using the word resiliency and talking about supply chain management, could you just elaborate on what you mean by that? Well, and that's where I'm looking at more of a, a redundancy, a backup plan, because we're in a case where patient care, or we can't just say, oh, sorry, we can't do that test right? Because that has severe consequences. Since you hear the statistics, 70, 80% of all tests, right, lead to a diagnosis, a prognosis, you know, an actionable item that affects patient care. And so we have to keep our tests functional. And so we can't afford to go test down. And so that's where that resiliency in supply chain is, is okay, take, for example, just the molecular testing. Normally, in a non-pandemic time, a lab wants to bring up one test across the enterprise, right? We want to standardize, have the same platforms, the same reagents, so you have that benefit. Well, we have over nine different molecular platforms. That is not a normal approach in a typical time, but we had to do that because each manufacturer only had a limited amount of reagents. And so in order to meet the testing needs, we had to have that redundancy that again, in a normal thing that goes against our normal principles of trying to consolidate and, and standardize, but we had to go with all of these different vendors and platforms, which was a lot more effort on the laboratories and staff who have to validate, maintain competency and run these tests, but it was the only way to meet the patient care needs. Uh, and so that's what I mean by that resiliency. And, and, and so you're working differently, right? to meet the needs of the patient in these times. That's brilliant and well said. I, I think I need to close it there. We've been rounding with Dr. Janetto, and thank you for taking the time to talk about this with us. My pleasure. So uh, we invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.